0: We live in a dark world Uh, that is not only evident uh, through the circumstances that we go through each week, and in, in particular this past week, another tragic shooting will make one despair of just how bad things seem to be getting from time to time. I know old people say that a lot. When I was younger... People would say, "This country is going down the toilet, and I remember as a young person thinking i don 't see that you know, and now i 'm fifty and i 'm like, "This country is going down the toilet <laughs> um, i don 't think it 's going down the toilet any more than it used to go down the toilet. I think it 's a reaffirmation of general toilet status, which is that things are difficult people, all of us are broken and as unpopular as it is to say in our culture. There is real evil in the world, and we see it in our own hearts, and it gets manifest unrestrained by the grace of God in such terrible, awful ways. The events of this week, as has been the case in a number of tragic events in our history, it causes us to look for light. You know, we're always sort of grasping for what good's going to come out of this, or what possibly could be a shining moment in the middle of all of this darkness. When I was a youth minister, I used to do really, really fun physical stuff. That was 15 years ago. Uh, Now I, at 50, find myself saying, I just soon have everybody over to the house to watch sports. You know, it used to be, let's go caving, yeah! I can't cave anymore. Uh, uh, If you've never been spelunking, it's, it's quite the experience. I've been one time, and that's all it took. I can say now, check it off my bucket list, I've done it. You go into caves and it's pitch black in certain places, and I mean darker than you've ever experienced in your life. This is a picture of somebody spelunking. You get one of those little miner's helmets. The interesting thing is, is when you, before you like, descend into the earth, they tell you to put your helmet on and then turn your light on, and you turn it on and you wonder whether or not it's working or the battery's dead because the light is so faint. You can, you barely see it on. You know, you go, gosh, I think there's something wrong with my helmet. And they go, no, 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 trust me, this is right. And what happens is, is that teeny little filament that's barely showing up in the light of day, when you get down into the bowels of the earth, I love that term, hardly ever get to use it, bowels of the earth. When you get down there, it's dark as a dungeon. That little light shines really, really, really bright. So much so that you have to tell people when you're down in the bowels of the earth, don't look up at me like that with your helmet, you know, keep it, your helmet down, you know, you, you keep it below eye level because that light gets really, really glaring. Light is, a, is a, an important part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This month we will look at light passages from the gospels themselves as we deal with what is now our annual tradition to revisit why we exist in the first place. Every year, not because we feel like we have to explain it, but because we want everybody to know why we feel, why we sensed that the Lord wanted us to begin a new church in this area that if you drive up and down Colorado Street, you'd have to ask, why do we need new churches? looks like a bunch of buildings. And it is true, we are an over-churched, under-reached city. We've got more buildings, but we've got more empty buildings. And frankly, there's a justification for starting churches where your primary purpose for doing so is to proclaim with clarity that Jesus Christ is the light of the world. Our vision as a church, in case you've ever wondered these things, this is why we do what we do this month. We would say our vision, our vision. Prism Church exists to shine the light of God's grace and love to L.A.'s San Gabriel Valley and the world. Now, what is light? You know, we say we, we want to shine the light of God's grace and love. The question is more like, who is light? The light is a person. It is Jesus Christ. Now, we distinguish our vision from our mission, you hear us talk about our mission quite a bit, which is PRISM exists to revive believers, reach friends, and renew culture for the glory of Jesus Christ. So we have this overarching vision that's tied to our name. It's tied to our logo. It, you'll see that recurring theme in a lot of what we do. The, the genesis of our name, you can read about it on our website But PRISM, at first, was merely an acronym for the primary cities of our influence, Uh, Pasadena being the P, Sierra Madre being the SM, uh, and then, depending on how willing you are to accept it, Arcadia, with the silent A, would be the R next to PRISM, but uh, (laughs) if we ever plant a church in Irwindale, we'll take the I, but what happened was, is I was... I was looking at these cities conglomerated together, and I thought, that kind of sort of looks like the word prism. And then West Virginia, journalism student that I am, uneducated in the sciences, freshman science, senior high school, didn't really pay attention anyway, didn't know what a prism was, age 45, could not have told you what a prism was an indictment of the public school system. All I can tell you is, is that I didn't listen and I didn't care to know. And, all, and what a prism effectively is, is, is merely something that refracts light and produces the rainbow effect that you see. So uh, light shines through a prism and you get this colors of the spectrum glory. You get this picture. And I thought, wow, that is a tremendous picture of what the church should be. Because see, the prism isn't anything in and of itself. I mean, you know, generally if you look at a prism, it's like a piece of glass, right? But until light shines through it, then it takes on a whole other purpose and a whole other beauty. And I thought this really is indicative of what we want to do as a church. What I had always wanted to be a part of, which is a church that is central in its proclamation that Jesus is in fact. The light. Now this month we'll detail from Scripture the basis for our mission to revive believers, reach friends, and renew culture. Today I, I want to look at a passage that actually drives our vision. And it's John eight twelve through nineteen. John eight twelve says this again Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I realize this is a verse that sounds like a nice saying to stick on the back of your church sign. In fact, we have. On your way out, if you didn't notice, John eight twelve is on the back of our sign. But as is the case in Jesus' time, this nice verse actually creates for people who would look at it and understand the implications of it, creates at times controversy. In Jesus' times, his claims were offensive to those who heard the underlying implications contained in them. Jesus is saying effectively in this verse, A, the world is a dark place. We are a broken people, dark in our hearts. He said elsewhere with clarity, the world was sinful and we are too. And as well, B, Jesus said he is the light of the entire world, not just Palestine, where he happened to be proclaiming this truth. If you don't follow him, he said, you're walking in darkness. Now think of that. Understand why it bothers some people? You're saying that I'm in darkness, me. Who are you to say such a thing? This was, in fact, the response of the Pharisees of his day. Jesus was claiming to be the light of the world, not the light of his little section of the world or the world that was known at that time. Jesus was saying, I'm the light of the world, which means those of us now on the opposite side of the globe from where he said this in the first place are now saying that guy who said he is the light of the world on the other side of the world is actually the light of the whole world. See, it's not something that is geographical or cultural in nature. Jesus transcends culture. He transcends time, as we'll see in the, today's scriptures. Jesus is saying that he is the light. Now, before we worry that religions are too quick to be absolutist in their declaration of truth, let me assure you that even the most staunch person who would say, I don't believe in God, a skeptic, an atheist somebody who may be steeped in a thinking that is called relativistic thinking, which is saying really can't know absolute truth, that they themselves actually participate in the process of absolute thinking. Because oftentimes what you'll hear somebody say is there is absolutely no such thing as absolute truth. But you can't say that because in so doing, what you end up doing is declaring an absolute. Do you understand that? The best you can do is go i don 't have any idea whether or not there is absolute truth. I can live with that. I mean, I can accept that i I, I wonder myself, but at the same time, I go there you can 't declare that people who who claim to have a, a picture of absolute truth are somehow or another arrogant because in order to do that, you yourself have to be arrogant. Tim Keller demonstrates this by using. Uh, a, a fable that is, you know, Indian in its nature, but at the same time has been used by philosophers over the years to describe or to maybe even encourage pluralistic thinking. We, we embrace here at PRISM that we live in a religiously pluralistic society. I'm thrilled that there are synagogues and mosques Um, I like being in a culture that is not a theocracy. I don't want anybody to ever hear or infer from what I say that my long-term goal in starting a church and being a part of a church plant is to forward an agenda that will eventually turn America back into a Christian nation, which it never was to begin with, but we won't go there today. I'll just say our goal here is that we would proclaim Christ and so I'm, I th- I'm thrilled to live in a country where there is religious freedom, and we encourage tolerance. You can't bully anybody into believing what they don't believe. If they don't get revived by the power of the Holy Spirit, they'll never embrace the notion of a resurrected Jesus who they could actually talk to. So don't hear me wrong when I say this. In Keller's book, he is talking about a, a fable, a metaphor called The Blind Man and the Elephant. I have a visual for this to help you understand where they're going. The way way this works philosophically is, is that it's a story about six blind men who approach an elephant from different places because they all come from different life journeys. And as a result, each blind man sort of kind of creates his own version of reality from their limited experience and perspective. Now, this image is supposed to encourage all of us to be tolerant of one another. Humble towards one another to say I don't have the whole truth So i'm going to like be careful not to imply that you're ignorant because you don't have the truth And we all have sort of a portion of the truth and the, the design of the fable Is that you and I would be kind towards one another who believe different things than we believe and if that is the end That is a terrific thing. I want to be kind I want to be tolerant of other people's views But if the end of this is to say that no one No one, even Jesus, could say, I am the truth. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. If the end of this type of metaphor is that you can't ever know truth, I would sort of have a problem for a variety of reasons. First of all, to say you can never know the truth is itself an absolute. Secondly, what Keller aptly points out in his book about this image is, if this is about religious relativism, that... Nobody can know the truth. The person who drew the image in the first place is really occupying this place of saying, I see you poor little blind people grasping for knowledge and truth. I, on the other hand, am wise enough to rise above all of you and see the whole elephant. See, even the position of saying that there is no absolute truth or no one really sees the whole of God presumes that you as the philosopher, see the whole of God. We want to know the answers. Jesus says he doesn't have answers. He is the answer. He doesn't say, I'm going to provide some truth. He's saying, I am the truth. He isn't saying, I've got another little light that I'm going to provide. He's saying he is literally the light. And the Pharisees of his day asked the same questions that many in our day, maybe some here today, ask when faced with these claims. And the question would be, who do you think you are to say such things? So here on Sunday 1 of Vision Month, we want to look at the context of our church's theme verse and attempt to present answers to the question, why do we at PRISM think Jesus is right? Why do we think Jesus is worthy of worship? Why would we believe that this man is the light in a dark world? Why do we think the world is dark? Why do we think Jesus is who he says he was? And why do we think that Jesus is correct in saying that those who don't follow him walk in darkness? I think it is a fair question. I hope we can answer it today. Who does Jesus think he is to say such things? The first skeptical inquiry that we'll look at today is what the Pharisees' first question in our passage today was. The Pharisees said to him in verse 13, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. In other words, they were asking, why should we believe you? Who can verify your claim? I think this is a fair question. Jesus doesn't even mind the question. His answer may not have satisfied them. This question predominates in our scientific age. Most people say, prove that what you say is true. Prove it to me, repeat it. And so we are sort of sort of locked into having to prove things, some of which are unprovable, like where matter came from in the first place. I can't prove that. I can't help you there, friend. It has always been, well, since God created it. See, so, yep, some people will be okay with the idea that it spontaneously came into existence. And there's no evidence that that would ever have happened ever in the history of mankind or in the world for that matter. The question asked is prove, Jesus, who you are. And so they're speaking in a language that is saying, this is like court. You can't go into court and say, okay, let me give you my testimony. Okay, who can validate that testimony? I can. Okay, who else? Me. I mean, people aren't satisfied with that. You've got to have witnesses that come to your defense. One of the old adages is that it is a fool who takes up their own defense at trial. So every now and again, you'll get this really cocky, usually a man, who goes into his, his trial thinking he wants to play lawyer because our Constitution allows him to, and he just gets waxed, you know, just gets trashed by the other attorneys because he doesn't have the humility to recognize he doesn't know what he's doing. Well, Jesus responds to these people with effectively an answer that says, you're not going to understand if I tell you anyway, so why in the world would I bother trying to defend myself to you all? My testimony is valid. Listen to what he says here. Verses 14 through 18, Jesus' answer to their question, why should we believe you? Who can verify your claims? Jesus says, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true for I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment's true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I'm the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. So Jesus is saying, okay, you need a... You need two verifications, huh? Okay, me and the Father who sent me. What Jesus is effectively saying in this passage, though, is that he has existed from all eternity. He knows where he came from. He knows where he's going. It's important to recognize that the Scriptures, Old and New Testament, never say that we as souls of people, souls in our physical beings, existed for eternity We were created by God. Our souls were birthed at our creation, which is why we take the life issue in our culture so seriously that once God determines to create a life, he is saying, I identify that as a person with a soul. So Jesus is saying to them, before I was born, I existed. I existed, I pre-existed in the world that you live in. I preexisted before you ever thought of being a human being. I was with the Father and am one with the Father. Jesus' answer to their inquiry is to simply elaborate on his declaration that he is God incarnate. Now subsequent to his bodily resurrection from the dead, Jesus could verify his claim to be God in the flesh. His disciples, having seen him alive, after his crucifixion, communicated this truth in their preaching and in their writing. In fact, Jesus' friend John led off his historical account in John 1 by talking about Jesus being not only the creator but the light of the world. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus, according to our creeds, created through him all things were made. The Apostle John verifies that Jesus existed. He sang... He is, in fact, by nature, God, that Jesus in the flesh is deity incarnate. He is what we hope God would be anyway, loving and kind. Jesus is saying, my testimony is valid because of who I am. His resurrection validated that testimony. His disciples knew that to be true, and that's why we would say as a church, with a a certain measure of boldness. That if you're convinced Jesus is not alive, quit worshiping him. He can't hear you. Quit praying to him. He, He isn't listening. He's dead. Quit saying you're a follower of Jesus as if he actually is somebody you literally walk through and follow. If Jesus isn't alive, he's not alive, you may kind of glean perhaps from some of his teachings good things that you think are good, but you can't exalt him to this place that the scriptures exalt him, that his disciples exalted him to and say he's worthy of worship. He is the light of the world. I had to testify in court a couple times as a teenager. Long story, different day. <laughs> One of the things that's frightening in front of a jury, especially when you're the cause of the entire gathering in the first place, is when you have to raise your hand and swear to tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth to help you, God. You know, as a 14, 15-year-old, I did that and then recognized that my parents were in the room, and that was what I was really worried about. I had gotten in some trouble by drinking excessively. And one of the questions I was asked under oath was, how many beers did you have? Now, you have to understand, what's amazing about this real story is the court just wanted to verify or the 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 attorney the defense attorney in this particular case uh, wanted to verify that I had had a few beers and that I was drunk which would have been fine I mean it would have been he's drunk he made a big dis- really foolish decision but with my parents in the room if they knew that I had, had 10 beers what that would have meant is this was not my first time out drinking beer and so under oath, I went, how many beers did I have? Five. <laughs> because I was not, go- I, was gonna- I didn't mind that everybody knew I was drunk, but man, if I told the truth about that, I was going to be in real trouble with my mom and dad. <laughs> Isn't that amazing that you can be a 14-year-old, 15-year-old in court and worried most about what your parents are thinking? You're not the jury, not the judge, not the law. I'm like, oh, Lord, if my parents find out I've been drinking this much, I'm in real trouble. So I confessed to you as a church today that I lied under oath. Thankfully, the statute of limitations is <laughs> 35 years old or today I could get coughed and carted off to some prison in Maryland. But I just remember how, how, what a crisis that was for me and, and how wrong it was for me. But how central the notion of telling truth is and swearing an oath is when you're in front of people, and this is what Jesus' Jesus's opponents, his skeptics, were saying, "Who's going to validate this testimony? Do you, are you telling the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth? And this is what's interesting is that Jesus' response is, "I solemnly swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So help me me." I mean, he's saying that. I'm God. I'm telling you the truth because of where I came from, where I'm going. I know who I am, in essence in my being. I'm the light of the world. There's a second inquiry they, they approach, because they were never satisfied with Jesus' answers, and so they're always going to have a follow-up question. The second inquiry then for them would be, okay, well, who is this father? See, so they're not getting the gist of things. I know where I came from. I know where I'm going. They're not thinking in terms of eternity. They're thinking he came from another country, and he knows he's going back to that country. They're not getting the big picture here. So they ask him, they say, therefore, where is your father? And Jesus' answer to the religious skeptics is to dumbfound them by speaking again of his incarnation. Jesus answers them. Here's this answer. You know neither me nor my father, because if you knew me, you would know my father also. See, Jesus is saying to them, if you had any idea who I was, you'd know that you were dealing with the son of the living God. But you don't know me. Frankly, you don't know my father. He had had this conversation with his disciples later in the Gospel of John. They didn't grasp the big picture stuff here either. Human beings during that season of the world, as is the case today, have a difficult time wrapping their heads around the idea that God would take on human form. And therefore, if you saw Jesus with your natural eye, then you had quite literally seen the Father who was unseen. This was as challenging then as it is now. People say, You mean to tell me that God came to earth in a human being so that we could actually see what He, with our visible eyes, we could see what His character was like? And this is what Jesus was saying to them You neither know me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. He said this to His disciples. In John chapter 14, I may have mislabeled this John 15. It's John 14, verses 6 through 10. 10. Jesus says this, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. One of his disciples, Philip, said to him, Lord, show us the Father and that's enough for us. So here we are again. Just like you, just like me, just like the skeptics of Jesus' day, Philip is saying, you know, show us the Father, and we're good to go. And Jesus says to his friend, Philip, "How, How have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. Jesus is saying to his friends, to his skeptics, he's saying to us, if you've ever wondered why he has to be declared the light of the world, it's because... For the only time, the first and only time in history, God arrived in human form to show us who he was. Why is it so important for Prism Church to stand with certainty on Jesus' declaration of being the light of the world? Because we believe that the Father has chosen to manifest his character in bodily form for we humans to understand. We believe that Jesus perfectly captures both the holiness and the grace and love of God. And it was God's desire that we see him as infinitely more perfect than we imagine, and yet at the same time, more gracious than we dared to dream. He also wants us to see as naturally us, ourselves, as naturally sinful and unworthy of his affections, and yet amazed at how gracious Jesus is to the humble and the broken. Jesus mercifully satisfied the justice of God, according to the Scriptures, by absorbing the guilt of our sins and extending his love and mercy to anyone who would humbly approach him. He is more majestic than we can imagine. He is more exalted than we can even fathom, which makes his grace and love amazing. And God has not spoken to us from a distance, but humbled himself to take the form of a human being so that we could see his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. So the light of the world would actually come into the world to guide our paths. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, this is what the writer of Hebrews says of Jesus and the word. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become much superior to the angels as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. You see, Jesus, our Savior, is the exact representation of the radiance of the glory and grace of God. If you have ever wondered, what is God really like? Jesus is saying, you can see it by looking at me. That's why he's the light of the world because he's giving us a vision. He's, he's helping us to see what the Father really is. Before Jesus, we were blind. We couldn't see the character of God. We were disabled, not just from our own brokenness, but from the world in which we lived. There was a separation between God and us. Naturally, it was incapable for us to have any certainty about what the invisible God looked like, and now he's made himself visible. And all of a sudden, the light is now on, and we can see Jesus as the light of the world. We know what the Father is like towards sinners towards broken people we also know what he's like towards proud arrogant people we know what god is like by looking at who jesus is and we want to be a church that merely reflects that that jesus shines through it we are today getting much needed rain californians are part of a select group of americans that cheer for rain to fall with the exception of Tammy from Seattle, who somehow or another loves rain. Now the joy for us in the next couple of days is to get to look for what we never see around here, which is rainbows. Rainbows show the color of the spectrum as the sun shines through water droplets, and those water droplets act as little prisms to refract the colors of the spectrum. and shows us something really beautiful. See, we believe that we are created by God, and because of that, we have immense value. All human beings have immense value. We were created good and for good. I think in a lot of ways, like water. Water is a means of refreshing the ground and quenching thirst, and human beings were meant to be this amazing provision for each other, love, love and care, and concern. But water, in and of itself, doesn't point necessarily to the miracle of its creator, the one by and through whom it was made. Never anyway as clearly as when the light of the sun passes through it. You see, you never really think of the glass of water you're drinking as something that would refract light and be able to show the beauty of the colors of the spectrum. I drink water every day and i never go wow look i'm drinking a prism i never think in those terms but there's something about the post storm cascading of moisture and the sun shining through that water that helps us all to remember in fact in genesis it says god designed it that way that we would remember the promise and the faithfulness of god that we would be we would see wow the, there's a creator there's somebody Who cares? He's providing water, but it's not just the water. It's the person who's providing the water. This is us. All human beings are valuable, but we were designed to be prisms for the majesty of God, which is seen best when the light of the world shines through it. Prisms vision, friends, is that we exist to shine the light of God's grace and love. That would be Jesus to LA San Gabriel Valley in the world. And I would pray that this month you'd be encouraged to join with us in that pursuit. Let us pray. Father, today we're grateful that you love us more than we can fathom. And our hope would be that this month, as in all months, we would have the privilege of getting to see Not only how majestic you are, how amazingly holy and how amazingly powerful and how righteous and pure you are. And that at times that might even make us a little unsettled. But then we get to learn through looking at Jesus, the light of the world, that although you'd have every right to judge us for our broken sinfulness, you have sent your Son to absorb any guilt for us, that we would stand in your presence forgiven and cleansed, that we would have the privilege of getting to see in Jesus the kindness, the provision, the slow-to-anger nature of who you really are. Thank you for that. May Jesus be exalted in our church, the light of the world. In his name we pray.